Well, family, have I told you lately that I love you? I really do. I love you. And I just got the sense when we were worshiping that, man, God wants to do a work in our lives. Amen. He, he really does. He loves each and every one of us so much. And uh, we need to keep asking, keep praying, keep seeking him because he's so willing and ready to work in our lives. And then the other question that I've been asking from time to time is, have you been in your Father's Word this week? Have you been in your Father's Word? I hope that the 30 for 30 challenge turned into 30 for 365 challenge, all right? Where you do 30 minutes in the Word every single day and just watch what God does in your life. It's nothing more powerful for a believer than spending time with his Lord and Maker and hearing from him through his Word. So if you're new here, we've been in this series called The Life of a Jesus Follower, where we've been getting to the simplest definition of what it means to follow Jesus. You know, there's a lot of really weird ideas of what it means to follow Jesus out there, and we just want to get to the one that Jesus himself talked about, the one that's in the scripture, so we don't get confused. And then, once we know what Jesus' life is all about, we want to pursue it with all of our hearts, and so... Uh, We've been learning in this series that he spent his life investing in three key relationships. If you know it, say it with me, with his father, and then with his disciples or his spiritual family, and then with the world, those who are far from God. And it's what Jesus' life was all about, and it's what our lives should be all about if we are calling ourselves Jesus' followers. Now, at Catalyst, we have three key words to describe these relationships, and we've been talking about them. The first one, the relationship with the Father, we're saying the word what? Abide. Good job. Uh, Every week, it's more and more people that are catching on, which is really good, all right? Uh, The second one, which is our relationship with our extended family, our spiritual family, connect. Good. And then uh, the third one, our relationship with those outside uh, of a relationship with God is... Share. All right. Good job, guys. Good job. So we are uh, growing in these three relationships as Christ followers. We're we're working towards growing and deepening these relationships uh, by the way we grow any relationship, and that is through time. Time invested. So we spend time with God. We spend time with our spiritual family, and we ought to be spending time with those who are far from God. It's not good to be a Christian living in a cocoon and all your friends are Christians, and you don't know any unbelievers. No, that's not good. That's not biblical. That's not what being a Christ follower is all about. We need to invest in others who are far from God and tell them the good news. Well, today, that's the part that we're talking about. We're talking about the third relationship, which is share, and we are talking about how we invest our lives into the lives of those who are far from God so that they can be introduced to a wonderful relationship with God. Now, I want to start by sharing some stories that just inspired me this week uh, about people and their story of coming to know Jesus, to coming to have a relationship with Jesus. If you can remember, try and remember what it was like when you first were introduced to Jesus. Some people have had dramatic conversions. I mean, miracles happening in their lives. You know, they were doing drugs, smoking, drinking, and all of that fell at once. Others, it was more of a process. But what we can all agree on is that when we met Jesus, our lives changed a little bit. Amen? If your life didn't change when you met Jesus, then you probably didn't meet Jesus. Because Jesus, that is who he is, right? A transforming person. We can't be the same person 
after we meet Jesus. But here's some stories of transformation. The first one is Christopher and Angela Yuan, and there's a picture of them. Um, the, the description of their life, as I read it, was this. Christopher Yuan was a good student and obedient son, but because of a group of friends, he turned his back on his family, embraced drugs, promiscuity, and rebellion. I mean, a true prodigal, right? His mother, Angela, who was struggling through a failing marriage and just the pressure of her son abandoning her, and because of the culture in which she grew up with, decided that her life was a failure and she was going to kill herself. But a priest who met her randomly gave her a pamphlet, a tract, describing the gospel and God's love. And something in Angela just turned when she read about the love of Jesus. She gave her life to Jesus. Instead of giving up on life, she began praying for her son and her marriage. And it was an arduous, years-long journey of prayer and sacrifice and not giving up and trusting until eventually her son gave his life to Jesus, her husband gave her life to Jesus, And now the family travels all around the world telling their story and encouraging others in similar positions, sharing Jesus everywhere they go. Christopher, the son, has started walking with Jesus also, and he's become an evangelist. And every time he speaks, he reminds people of Jesus' faithfulness in the hardness, the hardest of times. This is one of the quotes uh, from his uh, interview. It says, God's faithfulness is proved not by the elimination of hardships, but by carrying us through them. That's his perspective as he became a Christian. The next person's story is Rosaria, or Rosaria. I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, But it's an unusual one in that uh, she had literally everything to lose and nothing to gain from a worldly perspective by turning to God. Yet she did it anyway, and indeed the first few months, perhaps years, after she chose to believe and trust in Jesus, she lost everything. She lost her job, her friends, her students, and her colleagues' respect, her partner, her old and comfortable life was literally annihilated. And Rosaria was an English professor at a small liberal arts college who hated the way Christians spoke against her beliefs and communities before she was a Christian, obviously. One day she wrote a scathing criticism of one of the local Christian gatherings, and to her surprise, she received a thoughtful and kind reply from a pastor who invited her to call him. She was curious at this gentle and humble response, so she called him. Eventually, through their interaction uh, with the humble pastor and his wife, they invited her to their home. They had many conversations Um, They studied the Bible. Rosaria came to the conviction that God was real and that Jesus was his son, and she believed in Jesus Christ for her salvation. The next person, you might have heard about him because he's rather famous, Louis Zamperini. He was an Olympic runner and a talented mischief maker, the author says, whose incredible survival story, literally 30 days floating in the open ocean after his plane crashed into the sea, and then spending one year or more, uh, one plus years in a Japanese POW camp, being just tormented, especially by a sadistic guard, 
his story, as you might know, became a best-selling book and then a movie directed by Angelina Jolie. But here's the thing, the movie, if you want to see it, it only tells the first half of Louis' story. Despite his amazing endurance and his feats at the POW prison, and he received a hero's welcome once he was released and returned home, Louis Zamperini struggled with the demons of PTSD and revenge. He had so much hatred in his heart. His marriage began falling apart, and he nearly hurt his baby daughter and strangled his wife, Cynthia. Imagine that. But then Louis heard and responded to the message of the gospel at a Billy Graham event, and the Lord turned into, or and the Lord turned him into an entirely different person. People that have met him in person said he is one of the most gentle and loving and compassionate people that they've ever met. In his biography, um, author Lauren Holder describes his conversion. It says, in a single silent moment, his rage his fear, his humiliation, and helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he believed he was a new creation. Softly, he wept. Powerful. The next story is is the story of Ashley Smith. In 2005, she was widowed. She became a single mother. She was in the middle of moving when she was apprehended by an escaped murderer. And she was held hostage in her apartment for seven hours. Ashley herself, who who was a drug addict at the time, had lost custody of her daughter. And someone had given her a Bible and the purpose-driven life, which she was reading. And when Brian Nichols captured her, she spoke to him and read to him from the book, resulting in Nichols eventually releasing her to go get her daughter. Nichols later peacefully allowed himself to be arrested. During that process, Ashley broke free of her own drug addiction, trusting Jesus Christ, and long after regained custody of her daughter. Ashley's story was also eventually made into a movie. And the last story I want to share with you is Nabil Qureshi. He was the son of a loving, devout Muslim family. He was clean-cut, well-educated, kind, respectful, and really quite happy with his life. But then Abiel met David Wood, a staunch Christian who had once spent time in jail for attempting to kill his father. He came to know the love of God through an inmate that transformed his life. And now he was telling other people about the the love of Jesus. And for six years, these best friends became debate partners in a good way. David and Nabil argued back and forth, challenging each other and digging deep to find whose beliefs were actually true. Nabil had everything to lose and seemingly nothing to gain for rejecting his Muslim roots and turning to Christ. But in the end, he chose to follow where he saw the evidence leading him, and he became a Christian. He became a powerful evangelist, in fact, and an apologist, which means that he debates and defends the faith, the Christian faith, and especially amongst Muslims. And um, he did get persecuted. He, he did have people hate him for his um, turning to Jesus. Um, and unexpectedly, he died at the age of 34 from stomach cancer. But in his autobiography, he wrote this, All suffering is worth it to follow Jesus. 
all suffering, that was amazing to me. All suffering is worth it to follow Jesus. He is that amazing. What do you think about when you hear these stories? Do you remember your own story of salvation? Do you remember the transformation that happened in your life? If we think about all these stories that I just read to you, and even your own story as you're thinking about it, there are two very tangible commonalities in both of these. And that is this. Number one, the gospel transforms lives. Amen? The gospel transforms lives. And we see that in the scripture. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power. There is power in the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone, anyone that believes to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. To anyone. This is open to anyone. Whose life have you seen transformed by the gospel? Yours, so many people, as we just read. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but... To those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And isn't that what we see in the world today? There are people that that haven't trusted in Jesus, who know nothing of the gospel, and they say, that is the most foolish thing I've ever heard. And perhaps you were some of them. I was. I was one of those guys that made fun of Christians in high school. And yet, when I tasted and saw, and when I trusted in Jesus, it was the most amazing transformation that I've ever experienced. That's the first thing. The gospel transforms lives. Jesus changes lives, and he changes them dramatically. The second commonality that I want to bring up to you is that God uses people to deliver this life-changing message. He uses people. If If you think about the stories I just read, in all of these stories, God used someone. Did you realize that as I was reading it? A priest gives a track to a woman that was about to take her life. A persistent praying mother brings her prodigal son back to God. A humble pastor and wife show respect to a person who didn't have their same kind of beliefs, and they show hospitality, in fact. What an amazing thing for our day and age, right? That we can actually disagree, but and yet show respect to someone else's beliefs, and because of that, bring someone to Jesus. An invite to an evangelistic event, someone inviting someone to a place where the gospel is going to be shared, a preacher. God even uses preachers. How about that? Right? Preaching the gospel. Billy Graham. A purpose, I mean, a person who gave another person a Bible That can transform someone. A a person who gave another person a purpose-driven life book by Rick Warren. An author, obviously, who took time to write down what the Word of God said. A faithful friend who talked and debated and exchanged ideas with another friend respectfully and intellectually. All of these examples, and by the way, none of them are the same. They're all different. And I believe that they all play on the strengths of every person, right? Some of us are reading this like, man, I I think I could do that. I can't do that one. But everyone has the ability to do this. 
I'm getting ahead of myself in the, in the, in the sermon. But God uses people. Isn't that amazing? Romans 10, 14 through 15 says this. It says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Okay, so if, if no one believes in Jesus, they're not going to call on him. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear about this amazing, transforming Savior without someone preaching, without someone sharing the message? That's why we call it share. You share the message of the gospel or something. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Or unless they go, right? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Do you have beautiful feet? Do you preach the message of the gospel? From the beginning of time, God uses people to do his redemptive work. I'm reading through the book of Exodus right now in my devotions, my 30 for 365. And uh, I was so almost a little tickled by this passage in Exodus 3 where uh, the background is that the Israelites are um, under the harsh um, rule of the Egyptians and they're being tormented. They start crying to God. They're, they're enslaved. And so then the Lord answers. He, he comes to Moses and he answers him. He says, hey, Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I hope that encourages some of you who are going through, through hard things because God sees it and God hears it when you cry out. Amen. He says, I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out that to a land, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place where the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So my devotions, I'm like, man, imagine being an Israelite, and God is saying this to Moses. Imagine being Moses, because he's been taught about his people, and he hurts with them, Right? Imagine this. Yes, God, you're finally going to do something. You're going to answer our prayers. I can't believe it. This is so exciting. God is coming to deliver his people. And then look at the next verse, verse 10. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh. Whoa, I didn't sign up for that one, God, right? It's like, yes, I'm coming to deliver them. Now you go and deliver them, right? That, I thought that was so funny because when God does something, guess what? His favorite way to work in this world is through you and through me. I have come to deliver. Now you go, right? You know what this sounds like to me? If you turn over into the New Testament, it sounds like this. Luke 19.10, right? For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. This is Jesus saying, I have come to seek and to save all who are lost. That's why I'm here. In Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Wow, Lord. Yes. I can't wait. 
You're going to do amazing things. But then in Matthew 28, 19, right before he leaves, he says, Now, go. You go. I have come, but you go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. What's the corollary? I have come, but you go. I'm doing the work, but I want you to go. I want you to do your part. I want to use you in my grand scheme in this world. So what does that mean to us? It means that we have a high calling. You have a high calling. God wants to use you. Each and every one of you is a starter on God's team. There are no bench players. He doesn't cut anybody. He wants to use you. And by the way, this is your ultimate purpose in this world. This thing, you doing what you're, you're saved for, will bring you joy, satisfaction, more than anything else, I really believe. But here's the problem. We've lost sight of the fact that we are called into the mission of God. I read this book, Share Jesus Without Fear, many years ago, and I keep going back to it because he, he really gives you a way to share Jesus without fear, hence the title of the book. But in the beginning, to build kind of like the case for why we need to do this, he, he talks about a dream that he had. He says, One night I had a dream. A woman clutched a little girl, struggling to hold her child's head above the water. Nearby, a wave plunged a man into its salty depths. He choked for air as he thrashed his arms against the ceiling of water. All around, the ocean churned with drowning people gasping for air and desperately trying to push their heads above the surface. Their screams were doused by the roar of the relentless waves. Their cries caught the wind, but only in vain. They were alone in their terror and, in, and no help in sight. Then... A huge rock appeared, and a voice called into the darkness. People began crawling up the rock's craggy sides to safety. But when they got to safety, something happened that drove me almost goofy, he says. The people who emerged from the waves got busy. They got involved in building rock gardens, rock lives, rock jobs, listening to their rock music, and going to rock meetings where they talked about the people who were still drowning in the ocean. But nobody went back to the water's edge to help. Have you ever tried to run or yell in a dream, he says? In my dreams, I can do neither. Yet I tried to run. I tried to yell at the top of my lungs. How could you have forgotten you were once in the sea? As I watched the, quote, saved scurry about their rock work, and as I listened to their rock talk, I realized the rock was the cross of Calvary. The voice they heard was Jesus calling by the power of the Holy Spirit, inviting them to come and join him. He's never high up on the rock where it's safe. He's calling from the ocean's edge where the dead, the diseased, and the lost are found, and as you might recall, that's where he found you. A little convicting, isn't it? It says, 
One of the tragedies in our American Christian culture is that we've made it acceptable to be a Christian without sharing the gospel. I mean, we think of people, you're, you're such a good Christian because you do all these things, and, but if they don't share the gospel, it's almost like we, right? And it's an oxymoron. Why? Because Christian literally means little Christ or Christ follower. And if we follow Christ, we must be about his business. And his business is the salvation of the world. Sometimes I read the scripture and I, and I see such a difference between the church and Acts. Have you ever done this? And you're like, why is it so different? The church and Acts and the church of today. The difference between the church of AD 19 and the church of 2019. Well, what happened? Like, how did it get so weird and messed up? You know what I think? I think that the church, the early church, in the book of Acts, they never lost sight of their mission. They knew exactly what they were supposed to do, and they knew why they were here, and they did it with all of their hearts. A couple years ago, when Jen and I were away uh, during one of our December getaways, we get away every December for a couple nights to plan the next year and to give our year to God. Say, God, take away or add anything. You want us to move to Zimbabwe, we'll do it. I don't care. We just kind of give it to God. <clears throat> and it's, it's been a really powerful time. Well, while I was there, I, I said, I'm going to read the book of Acts every day while we're here. And a pattern began to emerge. I've never read the book of Acts like this. But do you realize that every single chapter in the book of Acts talks about people coming to know Jesus or about people going out to preach about Jesus. Every single chapter. And you can check me, because I've read it several times. I'm going to do a few of them, but I don't have time to go into all of it. But chapter 1, Acts 1, 7 through 8, this is Jesus he replied, the Father alone has authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you, what's going to happen? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then what? And then you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This is Jesus sending his people and giving them a vision. This is what you're going to be doing. And here's what's interesting. The rest of the book of Acts, how did these people interpret it? How did the disciples interpret it? Well, let's see. Chapter 2. The very first thing that Peter does after receiving the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.41. Those who believe, or he begins preaching. He begins preaching, and then Acts 2.41 talks about the summation of him preaching that gospel. It says, those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. That's chapter 2. Chapter 2.47, a couple verses later, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people, and each day the Lord, what? Here, here's the part. The Lord every day added to their fellowship those who were being saved. This is an important topic. He had to throw it in there. He didn't just say each day, the, you know, each day they were enjoying goodwill of all the people and meeting together and praising God and eating together. He said, oh, and by the way, those who were being saved were added to the fellowship. Chapter 3, Peter and John go to the temple and they see a man who's sick and they heal him. 
And in verse 12, it says, Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though we had made this man walk by our own godliness? He says, Jesus is the one who healed him. And then they go and preach the gospel. That's chapter 3. Chapter 4, it talks about people getting saved. In 4.4, it says, but many of the people who heard their message believed it. So they're, they're preaching the message. So the number of men who actually and now believed now totaled about 5,000 people. Chapter 5, the Holy, Spirit's frees, the Holy Spirit frees John and Peter from jail. And what's the first thing that they do? He, they go to preach because the Holy Spirit says, Hey, I freed you. Not so that you can go and take a vacation, but so that you can go and continue preaching. It says, In 5.14 and then 19 through 20, it says, Yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women. But an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail, and brought them out. Then he told them, Go to the temple and give the people this measure of life. And then in chapter 5.42, a little further down, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach every day the message Jesus is the Messiah. That's the message that they preach. Chapter 6, 7. I, I outlined all the way to 15, and I said, I'm not, this is, this is going to be like a three-hour sermon. But I have it, and, and it just gets more and more intense that they preached, and they went out, and they, they called people to Jesus, and it was what their lives were all about. I mean, it makes you wonder, like, I mean, why did God leave us here, right? I mean, I, I sometimes have so many struggles in my life that I wish that God would have saved me and just taken me straight to heaven. Like, man, that would have been awesome, Lord. And, and why doesn't he? I mean, that, that would have been great. Well, because we have a job to do. And there's something that we can do here that we can't do in heaven, and that is preach the gospel and watch people accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so that, he wants to use you. That is our purpose. Now, here's the point of all of this. It's not to shame you. It's not to make you feel guilty for not sharing Jesus. But rather to show you that this is your purpose. This is why you are here. This is why God has given you gifts. This is why God has allowed you to go through what you've gone through because your experiences will relate to someone else. This is why you are. You have a vital role to play in God's worldwide redemption program. You, you've been recruited. And get this, you get a chance to literally impact the trajectory of a person's life to change it like those stories in the beginning, to change a life, and not just here, but for eternity. That's what you get to do and participate in. You get to be a hope dealer, an ambassador for Jesus. My sister and I have had so many conversations about finding your purpose in life. She's a life coach, amongst other things. But we talked about how, like in this culture, that's, that's actually a rising topic, right? Like find your purpose in life. Find out why you were put on this earth and, and what you were put on this earth to do. And usually we mean this career-wise, right? Because, because we know, and we put a lot of importance in it, because we know that once people find their purpose in life, it will open them up to, to have meaning in their life and they'll experience more fulfillment, more joy, right? There's a surge of motivation, 
and promise that happens when you find your purpose in life. Well, let me tell you, it's all good to find that about your vocation, but how about about your entire life and your entire eternity? Imagine the joy. You get to play a huge part in God's worldwide program. And guess what? There's, there's joy for you, right? And there's hope for others. I just think of, of all the people that are hurting, who are hopeless, who are struggling, that Jesus is the answer. Jesus really is the answer. And yet they don't know, or they don't have that relationship with him. So we get to give hope to people, but I had this thought. And here's the other thing. I, I really think sometimes that Christians who are bored with their Christianity or they're disillusioned, I really think it's because they're not engaged in the game. I really believe that. Because once you start investing your life into other people and seeing them come to know Jesus, I mean, you get fired up. You have these conversations, yeah, it's a little uncomfortable, but then you think, oh man, they had these questions I didn't know. So you go back into the scripture, now you have a purpose, and you're studying with all your heart, and then you come back and you share, and you have this relationship, and you tell them, and then they accept Jesus, and all of a sudden you're, you know, we got, we got an opportunity, Jen and I, to, to see a couple, and we've seen a lot more than just two people come to know Jesus through this ministry, but two in particular stand out because their, their change was so radical. It could be one of the, the stories that we read ahead of time. And I've told you about Samantha, who when she used to come in, she used to party, she used to do all these things, and when she was coming to church, she thought that coming to church was the good thing to do. Like, I came to church, and so she would come in, and she would just kind of tell me, not knowing, She's like, oh my gosh, I'm so hungover, but at least I made it to church, Manny. <laughs> I'm like, okay, cool, that's a start, right? And as she told me about her parties and all that stuff, I'm like, I don't want to hear that. But you know, God began working in her, and, and I just recently did her wedding, and the most beautiful thing happened is that she says, Manny, there's a lot of unbelievers that are going to come, and I just want you to preach Jesus during my wedding because I want them to know. I'm like, who are you, right? From one year to the next, and there's another gal named Lindsay that we met passing out juice boxes at, at, a, at a park. And her transformation, single mom, depressed, was moving out here. She, she didn't have a place to live, so she was living in, in a boat. Um, and, and the radical transformation is just an amazing thing. I remember one time talking about these things with Jen. And she says, man. I'm going to pray for another Lindsay in my life because, man, that was so incredible. Jen actually discipled both of these women and walked them through and saw their transformation from week to week. And she's, I remember her saying that, just, man, I, I'm going to pray for another one of those because that was, like, really joyous, you know? And I really believe that, like, God wants to give us joy. It's not about shaming you. It's not about guilting you. I don't think God sat up in heaven and said, okay, what is the most efficient, practical, effective way to reach the world for Jesus? People. Yes, that's my number. No. Oh, we would have been the last ones. I mean, he could have written it in the sky, loud voice from heaven, speakers all over the world with him, just pre him personally preaching, right? He could have sent angels way more faithful than human beings at proclaiming a message. And yet he chose us. Like, really? You want me to do that, God? Why did he do this? 
I'm inferring this from Scripture, but I really believe it's true. I believe it's for our joy. I believe he enjoys it. It's like a dad that wants his kids to learn the family business. He's just like, I, I want to take you to work with me. I want you to know what I know. I want you to, and, and he wants us to experience joy. You say, how'd you get that, Manny? All the Bible scholars are, hey, wait a minute. A couple verses. Third John 1.4. This is John talking about the people that he's led to Jesus. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This is the heart of a father. This is John leading some people to Jesus and seeing them faithfully continue to walk. The greatest joy I have experienced, there's nothing that even compares, is seeing my children walk in the truth. If that's the joy that John has, imagine the joy that God has. Right? Luke 15.10, it says, Just so... I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The angels even have joy when sinners repent. There's a party going up in heaven, and guess who the party master is? It's God himself rejoicing and leading the joy. And then in the beloved parable that we all know have been impacted by, the prodigal son What happens at the end? It says this in Luke 15, verse 21. It says, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And what did they do? They began to celebrate. God threw a party. I really believe that God wants to share that joy with us. It's like, oh, you, you've never known joy until you see a sinner repent. And trust in Jesus Christ. And he wants us to experience. He wants to invite us into the party. Into the joy of his work. And I I really believe that, that that's why we don't experience more joy. Because we're not involved in the work that God is doing. In conclusion, and with this I end. Did you know that as few as 20% of the people in the average American church have ever shared their faith? This is ever. Less than 20%. And as little as 9% have ever led someone to Jesus. This means that over 90% of Christians have never had the joy that comes from leading someone to Jesus. Now what do we do with this? What do we do with this? For the next two weeks, this I wanted to give you the overall pictures. Like you're called and God has a great plan for your life. He wants to use you. And there's right now, there are people in your life, in your circle of influence that don't know Jesus, that God said, you know what, who can I pick? Who can I pick? And he's put you right in the middle of that to be a witness. And he wants to use you. So where do we go from here? In the next two weeks, we're going to talk about the how. Like, how do we engage in this? How do we... You know, overcome our fear, whatever our excuse is, whatever our reason is, you know. 
How do we do that? And, and I want to walk with it because, because I feel fear too, you know? I feel apprehension sometimes, and I get lazy, and I get all into my own life, and I don't, start, I don't think about anyone. I get tunnel vision, right? Like, hey, I got, I got a church to run. I can't be sharing the gospel with people, as dumb as that sounds. So, we're, you know, we're going to take small steps, and, and hopefully we will gain this passion where we reach so many people for Jesus. But where I want to start today is in what the disciples did in Acts 4 when they were threatened and fear began to creep into their hearts. They did something. Let me read it to you. Acts 4, 29 through 31, it says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Lord, can you see the threats? Can you see why we're afraid? Right? They were honest. And grant your, to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And then they said, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, it says this, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The first prayer that we all need to pray is for ourselves. It's not for the unsaved, it's for ourselves. God, let me be bold. Let me make the most of every opportunity. I want to be used of you, right? And so that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do.